0: The New Zealand Māori Arts and Crafts Institute, NZMACI, is known on the ground floor as NZMACI. Now, I haven't visited the Institute since the early 1990s, so I get a bit of a refresher on how the tour works with guide Carl Leonard.
1: Uh, kā tira, tēnā just Jassi Nōtira, tēnā koutou e Maina. Uh, ko au tēnei, uh, o Ngāti Rangi Wewehi, engari uh, kōroa Mahiane e mahi ane e mahi, uh, arahi tū, tūruhi kunei.
0: Kia ora. Kā tira, tēnā koutou. Kia ora, kia ora Carl. Okay, so were you the first male guide, official male guide here at Te it... uh,
1: Yeah, I was. <laughs> I'm officially the first male guide ever at Te Puyo, actually at New Zealand Māori Arts and Crafts Institute at that time. That was back in 1983. Prior to that, the ladies wouldn't let any males guide. Well, that was at full stop. No men allowed.
0: So so how was it that you broke the mould, essentially?
1: Uh, I think it might have been a, a few reasons. One one is um, my my uncle was the first director here, but that was long, long before my time. Second is
0: um, we are talking about Mr. P.H. Leonard.
1: Yeah. So Pakake Leonard, that was was my uncle, he's the first director. Uh, When I actually came here, I got on really well with um, the queer of that time who were guides, and they were between the ages of 55 to 65. And they're really the ones who actually got me in as a guide. Um, So they they knew my queer, Pare Waha Leonard, because they knew her as a weaver, they knew my uncle. Uh, my sister had also married down into Tuahaurangi to, to Ngati house so they kind of found a little bit more favour. And I think they might have liked my poisonality, so um, they kind of took me under their wing. But prior to that, they wouldn't let any males in. I mean, uh, I remember them talking about even ones as well-known as Irirangi Te Awa, were denied. He wasn't allowed. So, you know, it, it was quite an honour back in the time, but um, it was really due to these uh, these women. Uh, we're, we're at our Tomokang, I guess it's the, the entry. It's it's a fairly uh, new structure. It's a, it's a uh, modern take on an old story, and it's, it's the Ranginui and Papa Tuanuku separation of sky and earth. Um, so, this is one of the versions, and it's about uh, the separation of the two. We have 12 po here representing uh, the 12 different heavens. The upper figures are representing Ngātua Oterangi, uh, Ngātua. Now, to a tangata, the people are the, the lower forms, and in the centre of it we have a, uh, a large pounamu boulder there, all the way from the South Island. It's our Modi stone, as such. Um, so, and, and a lot of our overseas visitors, especially the Asian ones, get right into yeah, rubbing the stones because yeah. you know they understand this concept of giving energy over and receiving energy back. Although, you know, our tongue are kind of slightly vary to that because, you know, sometimes they just take the energy, <laughs> just depending on whose tongue it was. And, yeah, but we won't go to that. But, yeah, you
0: know. yeah. When you did a 16 year stint here and then you, you know, did your own thing for a few years and you came back, I mean, there must have been some huge changes, I mean, over a decade and then you came back here. What's the most obvious to you? Uh, ex- the name?
1: <laughs> well, the name is one. Well, yes, yes, the name changed when I was away. The two other structures, I mean, there's this new entrance, but, but fundamentally it's still the same. So, you know, with a lot of the old but new staff here who, who came after my time, many have asked, well, they, they said, well, you must be really enjoying it. There's lots of changes. I said, well, fundamentally, no, there's no changes. It's still the same practice. It's still the same custom. Tourism doesn't really change. It, the, the nature of the face may it's no different than you know, putting on lipstick and one day and not wearing it the next, so, no, so really it's still the same. So usually when, when groups arrive, uh, from the time they're, they're actually met from the coach, uh, the guides will introduce themselves or whoever's taking that, that particular group will bring them into the complex and usually it starts at one of two places. One is to introduce them to the area. So that's Te Whakarewe Tango Te Wahi. Also, introduce them to the name of the place. So, you know, sometimes we cut it down to Te or Waka for short yeah. for the pronunciation. But basically, we take them through the name, its pronunciation, the background of the name, how it, how it got named that. It's, it's just to lay a, a, as a format or a precursor to what they're going to see. Really, for a lot of people, that's what they're coming to see is yeah. the thermal activity. Yeah. And then with the carving and the weaving, that's for them as the bonus on top. Each one of the, the performances or the shows... We'll always stand, start with a, a widow or a challenge. They go through the, the formalities and then straight into the show. So this is the, the precursor to it. I see lots of changes in performance style, um, styles of the whittle, delivery. Um, you, you can tell those ones who are well-practiced and those who are just really starting off. But uh, most of the performers here, they they'd perform at least anywhere from three to five times a day. But, I mean, when you, when you consider that... That you know, some of our girls they get to practice Kalunga, you get to practice um, Wero, you get to practice uh, Fai all all these aspects that you can use later on um, when you have to do the real deal. I mean, it's not saying that this isn't the real deal, but you know, um, it 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 certainly does teach you to how to hold yourself, how to present yourself, how to perform really, um, in in a sort of a professional sense. At the moment, a group of tourists are making their way onto the the Aotea. So, so it all starts from from our tomokanga over here, from the gateway to the Morai. Uh, so, one of our ladies will come out. They will explain to the manuhiri exactly what's going to happen and the procedure, how the the wereo, uh will go. Uh, they will select whoever will be there on to to take the group on, and so everybody is quite aware of of what will what will happen. Yeah.
0: Chia te Inside the Wharenui here at Rotofio Marae, small kapahaka groups sing to about 40 or so tourists. They teach them waiata arenga, or action songs, and then waiata poi, poi songs. Following the performance, we make our way to the Whakarewerua Geothermal Valley, which is only a short walk away from Rotofio
1: Marae. From, from the entry down to the valley, really just to get to the geysers itself, is about 25 minutes.
0: Oh, okay, yep.
1: So, and, and that includes, you know, along the way going to see the Kiwi house, uh, one of the biggest mud pools, Ngāmuokaia Kōhō, as well as going up onto the geyser terrace, spending about five minutes there before returning back to the top here. You're actually here on a really good day. What do you mean? Um, well, you see that, that bit of reaction going on over there. Yeah? It's it's because we have had a rain last night. And so uh, now it's the steam mixing with the rainwater and the clay. So it's uh, basically kneading it, and that's why it's giving those uh, large plopping sounds. But, you know, once we've had a bit of dry weather, it just builds up into small cone-like formations like you see to the side. Uh. Uh, so that the mud is only a- active or visible in, in small spots. But uh, when you get a good rain, it dissolves down as much as, say, half a foot. And, uh, of course, it uh, becomes uh, rather boisterous. It's called now Mōkai a koko, the pets of koko. Now, um, according to some of the stories, in koko's time, and that was meant to be a good three, 400 years ago, this used to be a flat clay area. Now, a lot of the kids of the village used to actually come and play games here. One of the games was leapfrog. <laughs> So that's why they originally used to nickname it Frog Pool oh. because the kids used to play leapfrog here. But today, you know, no one can actually see people playing leapfrog here so it's, for most parts we just say because it looks like frogs jumping about. That was one of the stories for, for here for some of the locals. Um, but uh, in reality the mud pool is about uh, three metres deep, so a good nine feet. Um, three metres down there's uh small cracks in rock. Now in those cracks the steam filters through it strikes, and because the steam has sulphur in it, so the sulphur actually eats away the rock and it turns the rock into clay. Uh, because it's steam it also then mixes with uh, the surface water or rain water heats it up and then in turn mixes with the clay soil so it's a mixture of steam, rain water and clay But it's taken about yeah, at least a good 400 years for this mud pool to form. As long as the pressure escapes in this one place then the vegetation and housing are, or the motel or hotel there are Fairly safe. Uh, Mud pools don't generally pop open overnight. If they do, it means they're unstable. And like eyes and hot springs, if they suddenly appear as quickly as they appear, they can disappear as well. But this one has just taken years to to really form.
0: You know, when you bring the tourists down here, they just... Like amazed, what they when they see this?
1: Oh, pretty much, you know. For them, it's like little miniature volcanoes. <laughs> for some, they're just amazed by just just the the noise, the sound, the smell. Yeah. You know, the, 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 usually the smell of hydrogen sulphide gets to a lot of them. If they haven't had a good night out, or they had a good <laughs> night out and they're paying for it the next day, not the place for them to be, of course.
0: <laughs> Can I take a photo of you, Carl? Yeah. So you need to do that.
1: Oh, no. Catch that one. Catch that one. See that guy there? Catch it. Catch it. Because it's going to go. You're going to lose it. Now, the reason I say that is because that's kereru. Kereru started re-erupting in 1998. It's become more regular, so uh, that's kereru or wood pigeon, guys. It started to re-erupt in 1998. Um just the small heights, but sometimes it can actually hit a good 60 feet, say 20 metres. It was quite dominant during the 70s, and then it fizzled out. Um, basically, you know, because so many hotels, motels, homeowners were using thermal activity it depleted a lot of the pressure here. So some of these guys were becoming affected and that's why government introduced anyone living within one and a half kilometer radius of this area no longer permitted to use the thermal. But since they've closed a lot of people down, that's one of the results is that guys are there erupting to a good sixty feet in height. Even with our big guys at Pohutu, which is going in the background on top of the terrace, um the longest eruption, I think, up into the year 2000 during my time was at least 15 to 16 hours non-stop. But um, that got blown out of the water in the year 2000 when it erupted for over 300 days. So that shows you how much pressure is actually yeah. returning. Um, even, you know, and also in also itself, you might remember there was one lady and she woke and she had a geyser erupting in her driveway.
0: Is this Don Park? Yeah. Yep.
1: So, you know, that, that's a prime example of it. You know, 40 years prior, I'll say 30 years prior, of course there was a hot spring there. But because people were drawing off all the thermal activity before it could get to the spring, it was being drawn away. It sort of fizzled out. They thought it had died. They filled it in. Council approved, uh, you know, building permit, and they built on top of it. Of course, when they started to discourage the use of thermal activity, pressure builds back up again, thermal starts looking for its uh, um, yep. pressure points of where it can escape, goes back to the same place. So that's what happens. So you see, with a lot of our thermal activity, um, compared to what we had in the 80s, it has actually increased. There are good signs for old guys is that you know, maybe in another 10, 20 years there might be something happening on the, on the terrace again.
0: So Carl, when you talked about people drawing the thermal, what do you mean by that? People were opera- using thermal...
1: Yeah, so what they, what you do is you drill down, you put down a geothermal bore. Um, by using that bore, you can actually draw the water off for bathing pool or for heating. While electricity is good and helps us, it, at the same time, there's a cost and it's papatuanuku and it just you know, takes away the pressure and destroys things. Uh, their pool there to the left is actually the—that's the natural overflow of the geysers, and that's what we call the Blueies. Uh, temperature in there is about 30 to 50 degrees Celsius, so it's you know it's quite nice and warm, warm oh. place. To swim. There's also a crack on the other side of the terrace where it's like your own little private bathing pool there, but. The thing about the kids um, coming down here to swim is that they know geothermal activity.
0: That's right. I was going to say you've got yeah. to be a local. <laughs> oh, you've got to be
1: a local to be able to do that yeah. because you know it is actually pretty dangerous through there, and we try and discourage them from doing that because of course the independent travelling tourists look and think, "Yes, I can go swimming down there too." That's right. And of course they go walking out and get themselves burnt, and then oh. of course that falls back on us again. So you know it's, it's dangerous in that sense. But uh, really, it's the geyser waters that have created the surface. If they were to stop, then everything starts crumbling apart. Um, so those are steps. If the geyser waters stopped flowing, then then the terrace would start to crumble apart. And so with uh, the geysers here, Prince of Wales feathers on the left, Pohucha is the bigger one. Now it's, it's only about, what, 15, 20 feet. And then to the right, there's this spring here, the pool, Te And they're actually, they're all from the same channel or vent underneath the surface. But before it reaches the surface, the channel splits into three. Now, even with Te that that disappeared um, for over 15 years. You actually couldn't, you'd actually have to look down about 10 feet into it to see water. And so that actually only started coming back during the 90s. Right, roughly about 98 as well. So there never used to be this much overflow. But we're gonna move up onto the yep. terrace.
0: Reflection is an important part of my visit here at Te Puia, the New Zealand Māori Arts and Crafts Institute. Its establishment is a direct result of the efforts of those who saw, well, the urgency, really, of preserving Māori arts. Now, during my tour, we come across the souvenir shop and art gallery, where Carl and I stand in front of a life-size collage of black and white photos. It's of the first guides of Whakarewerua. Carl explains some of that history.
1: A lot of the older photographs really go back to previous times, anywhere from Guide Sophia, Topaia. She was the heroine of Tarawira, one of the heroines of that time when Mount Tarawira erupted. She was part Scottish, half Scottish, half Ngāpuhi. Uh, Somehow she ended up down here. She married into one of the, the families from Tarawira, from Tūhaurangi. And established herself down here, so she she carried on the legacy of guiding uh, around Tatura and around the pink and white terraces. So guiding was, and really tourism was a thriving industry there, and that you know that's roughly anywhere from the 1860s onwards. Uh, after guide Sophia came guide Maggie. Maggie Papakura, she became quite renowned um, but, but they also have her, her sister here, Bella, the writer of Parketa Wheru one of our national anthem poi um, and then of course then there's the next generation down so after Maggie came her daughter in law Guide Rangi and so there's all Guide Rangi's generation Guide Rangi was also another one born at Tarawira and then from Guide Rangi then you come down to another generation and that's uh, the likes of Guide Bubbles Bubbles Mihinui, um, and, and her generation. So there were different ones who became um, outstanding guides. One is because of uh, they took a lot of royalty around with them, uh, as well as you know international film stars and singing stars of the time, so that's how they became renowned. When I came in, it was Bubbles, Bubbles as well as her auntie Hepine, um, Hep um, Ransfield, so, you know, there were still a number of these old guides still around. And um, it's from them that we, we learnt most of our cordial, um, mm-hmm. how to conduct ourselves and how to relate.
0: Amazing. And so in front, standing in front of us, we've got all these beautiful old pictures.
1: Some people... We're in a modern day and age where people like compliments and, you know, you're meant to nurture the person and say lovely things to them. But, but these ladies... You know, they didn't bat an eye. They just told you exactly what they thought of it. If it was ugly, they'd tell you what you made was ugly. <laughs> and uh, you either improved it or you lived with it or you limped away in a corner and died. <laughs> but that's very much what, you know, a lot of these old ladies used to be uh, kind of like. They, they wouldn't be shy about saying, you know, who made that piece? It's not a very pretty piece. or you know, it's ugly. Um, and I still remember one of Bubble's comments to me um, uh, and, you know, I, I remember it fondly because it, it, it was exactly that. And it was about 1989, I was weaving a rain cape. She came past, she cast her eyes over it, and then she turned and said to me, oh, I, I see you're making a you know, a, a kahu a rain cape. Went, yes. She goes, oh, not like your auntie's work. She did beautiful, fine work. So, you know, those – and that's what I mean by they teach through negativity, which means, you know, it's, it's, well, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to pick your lip up? Are you going to try and improve what you're doing? So, you know, even though the comment might sound negative, it does actually have its um, –
0: you there's know, a, lesson there's for- a lesson
1: behind it, and that's that's really how they did everything back then. They never said to you, "Darling, that's beautiful."
0: It's beautiful. <laughs> when they didn't really mean no, it. They,
1: no, there was there was no mincing words with these ladies. <laughs> if it wasn't good, they'd tell you. And, and that, that's a good lesson in life, I think. Um, quite often today, you know, people people aren't used to failure or being told, "Well, hang on, that's not good enough. You need you need to fix that up." You need to do a better job. You need to practice.
0: So they were like they were
1: your grumpy aunties. The aunties you absolutely loved because they were grumpy, <laughs> and you know that—that that to me was the most endearing thing about them. That's why I enjoyed them the most, is um, they tell you straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, today I, I just don't think there's enough honesty. <laughs>
0: Fifty years since the Rotorua New Zealand Māori Arts and Crafts Act was put into legislation, 50 years. You know, when you reflect upon the last 50 years, what, what do you think of when it comes to what te puia has generated here in Rotorua as well as around the world, the ex- Māori experience? The
1: Māori experience. Um... I was going to be cheeky actually and say, well, I wasn't around 50 years yeah, ago, yeah, so I can't yeah. really tell you. For me, um, Tapuia and what it was back then, which was the New Zealand Maori Arts and Crafts Institute, um, in our time when we when we were guiding, it, it was really the child of of guiding from in the village. Mm. So, Fakari um, where a village, and here were um, had a co- cohesive relationship back in those times. So. Uh, even with the guides who taught us, they were from the village itself. And they'd always say to us, well, you know, when you look at this hill and you see these queer and Kroa buried here, just remember they're the ones who started this legacy. So, you know, I, I still see uh, the village side being an important part of, of uh, Te tepuya and who we are on this side. So, but, you know, after a period of time, it's no different than your own children. They kind of outgrow you, and uh, you no longer require... Your parents, you want to be a little bit more independent, and so in the 90s, the two areas separated. Mm. I, I kind of still miss the, the fact that we're not one. Um, I, I, you know, That's just my own personal view, that they'd uh, be more cohesive. Things would be more cohesive if they were, were one, but um, it doesn't mean that things can't operate independently either. Mm. So we move from being part of the village to being the New Zealand Māori Arts and Crafts Institute and being separate. Um, then from being New Zealand Māori Arts and Crafts Institute, we moved across to becoming Te puia. So we, we had a change in name and brand. Um, I'm still an old mm-hmm. New Zealand Māori Arts and Crafts Institute mm-hmm. staff member. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always look at this place as that, even though I know the new name is Te puia. But Te puia, um you know, is, is commemorative of the fortified village over there in the valley. Um, I still like the old name. Um, uh, So that was a great thing about here, uh, about the arts and crafts during the 1980s, is that the majority of our staff members then were queer and kou So you had all these old people around. So we went from cultural into commercial. Mm. And, you know, both have a totally different focus. Um, It's really hard to get an even balance where one doesn't try and over-dominate the other. The problem with commercial, and that's, uh, that happened in the 90s, is that while you might have a good background in marketing um, or you might have good ideas in, or you might have a good background in finance, it's about knowing the nature of what this business actually is, and that's tourism. To know that tourism actually fluctuates with the season. To know um, that with culture, you can only push culture so far before you turn it into Disneyland. Uh, we've been through those, um, I call them growing pains and teething pains of the past or during the 90s, and right through into 2000. It's it's about knowing that you've overstepped the mark, or you've stepped over the line, and this is no longer Maori. This is actually just total commercialism, and it doesn't work. You know, you're here to to represent the culture, which is not only the culture. Uh, the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, but of now as well. Mm. Because, you know, culture evolves and changes. You can't get too locked into one thing. And sometimes um, with our people we get locked. It's it's not just generic to Māori, but to a lot of people you get locked into a way of doing things. Through culture, we're, we're able to survive. So, you know, we're able to make a living, whether it be in the performing arts and uh, kapahaka, but you know, in doing that, where it, where it's failed and got lost in everywhere else in the Motu, we maintained it here. Um, when you want to see carving and weaving, where does it automatically come to mind? But Rotorua as being the centre. Not that it wasn't anywhere else, but this is where we made sure that it flourished and it survived. And so, really, it's due to tourism that these arts have remained. Otherwise, um, it would have died. You know, it perekitemua. So, you know, even with Seapira during his time in looking for, for carving, this is the centre that he came to because he knew that carving was still flourishing here. Um, even when he looked for experts in using in ads, they died out everywhere else. The only carvers uh, left were from here, and that was Eremiha. So Eremiha then started up the carving school. Um, there were a couple of others before him, but he was the main one to lead the carving school of that time which later on one of his um, students became the master carver of this school so you know um, it's, it's continuing on that legacy
0: So as I wind up my tour I ask Carl what the perks of the job are and for him he goes right back to his teachers
1: So you know the, the great thing about when I started here was that the old girls they, they were still speaking Maori at that time but it was for a different reason it was so that you could talk about the tourists in front of them <laughs> and they wouldn't understand what was being said. And that's actually what got me into speaking Maori was was, you know, they'd walk past and they'd say, te ho-ha te ne tangata. Oh, ko ah, oh ah, ni ni te So, you know, they'd they'd be talking like that and saying it with a smile so so you you would you would you would never let your body language or the tone of your voice Tell them what you were talking about. Sometimes they'd be able to, you know, they'd be able to put two and two together and figure out how oh, well they're talking about us, but we can't tell what they're actually saying. So, you know, sometimes they do it with a smile, and that was the great thing about them. Uh, that's, that's why I say you learn to become a performer, which means, you know, you put the good face forward while all the time you're thinking something else in your head. So they were like that.
0: Ai, kia ora, tēnei te e Karl. Now for pictures of Tetohu Tohu and Pohutu geysers uh, and the rest of my tour head to radio.nz.co.nz forward slash teahika. That's T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A. And in the page you can find the links to the shows we've covered throughout the year.